0: Well, thank you so much for having me, citizens. Uh, It's really good to be uh, back here. I was uh, a part of this church uh, before it launched out as citizens. And uh, it's good to be back here uh, sharing God's Word with all of you uh, this morning. If I could just say, you know, I know Jason uh, makes uh, leading this church look so easy at times, and he doesn't break a sweat, but um, just as somebody who's been leading a church, and I like to say this anywhere I go to guest preach, uh, you know, of course, there's so much joy in leading a ministry. There's so much joy uh, attached to uh, really uh, feeling that calling, hearing that calling, and then executing that calling. But at the same time, it's a heavy burden and it's a heavy call, and uh, there's a lot uh, that lead pastors go through. And so, as you're going through this summer speaker series, as Jason gets to take a little bit of a break, uh, please do encourage him. Uh, take time to stop by, maybe drop off some food. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to bum rush his house, but uh, but um, but if there's any way for you to encourage his wife, his his children, uh, him, uh, please do so because uh, you know there's a lot of stuff that we have to deal with, and and so it's really good to be encouraged by the people that we're ministering to as well. And I know know that's something that Jason can't say, uh, something that I can say, so uh, I'd like to commend you and encourage you uh, to that task of really encouraging Jason and his family uh, during this season. Well, uh, as Jason mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking about community today, and it was perfect because I was asking Jason, hey, what should we talk about? Um, is there anything that I could serve the community with? And, uh, and he said, hey, what, do you have anything on community? And actually, our church in Seattle is going through a sermon series as we speak. We're, we're finishing it up today called The Shared Life. And the reason why we decided to do this uh, over in Seattle is because uh, in Seattle, uh, we, have, we have the loneliest city in the world. Uh, all of these people move from all over the world, uh, literally from all over the world, to be in Seattle to work in the tech industry, to work at the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Microsofts, and yet all of these uh, software engineers, these UX designers, these project managers uh, have so much money. I mean, you you have 22, 23-year-olds, uh, three-year-olds coming out of college, getting these jobs, and they're 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 blessed with six-figure uh, uh, kind of money. And so they live in these high-rises all alone because they have the means to do so uh, in these beautiful apartments, and yet everyone, Seattle, in, in every part of Seattle, everyone is lonely, they're depressed, they're anxious, and so we thought we needed to address this as a church, that we needed to show that what the Bible says is that the best way to live is not alone. The best way to live is not to live isolated, but the best way to live is actually in community, And so I'm so glad that uh, Jason asked uh, for me to share on this because this is something that I've been thinking a lot about, something that I'm very passionate about, uh, and something I hope that the Word of God can speak to us today on. I'm not sure how you guys, do you guys rise as you guys read the Scriptures or just, huh? You can? Okay. Well, if you guys are able to, would you guys rise? I, I love reading the Word of God, standing, something we do at our church. Uh, we just love the, the reverence and honor of, of reading God's Word. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 133, uh, and then we're going to jump over to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 20 to uh, chapter 5, verses 2. I'll read this for us. Um, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord at the end of that reading. If you guys can respond with thanks be to God, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. All right, behold, this is Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now let's skip over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to chapter 5, verse 2. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work a labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that we may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for you and then Let me seat you afterwards. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. We pray your blessings over today. We ask that you would bind us together as a community, that you would help us to love and to share this love with all. God, that we would not be selfish with our love, but we would bless each other and really nourish each other's souls through the love that we have for one another. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, I have three points. If you guys like taking notes, you guys can write these three points down. Uh, The first point is called the value of a shared life. The second point is called the cost of a shared life. And then finally, the resources that you will need for a shared life. Uh, well, you know, I, um, one of the things that I, I love about Scripture is whether or not you are a believer in here or not a believer, uh, what I believe is this, is that Scripture can bless you. In other words, if you follow what Jesus says, despite whether or not you believe Him to be Lord and Savior of your life, if you just begin following His words, His words can actually bless you in every aspect of your life, including relationships. In fact, C.S. Lewis um, says it, he puts it like this, he says, I believe in Christianity, As I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, he believes in Christianity not only because he sees the evidence for it, but also because by it, by the words of Jesus, he makes sense of all of life. It makes sense of all of life, including our relationships. And so whether or not you follow Jesus here uh, for the last 80 years, or whether you're just starting to seek him, we hope, I hope that this sermon today can really help you. Uh, that if you apply some of these words to your lives, you'll begin to see and begin to experience the goodness and the truth of who of who Jesus is. And so, you know, for me, uh, when I was when I was he- I was here in LA for about ten years. And when I was here in LA for 10 years, this is when the iPhone just started getting popular. And my dad, who's here somewhere, uh, he, he got his first iPhone and he started messaging. He's, uh, he's from South Korea. He's an immigrant. He doesn't know how to speak the language that well. And so he started messaging and, and he decided to send off his first text message to me. And I still remember verbatim, verbatim his first text message to me um, uh, because of, of, of just its contents. And, uh, you know, mind you again, my dad's an immigrant, he's from South Korea, and so he sends off this first text message, and it says this, and we hadn't, by the way, we hadn't seen each other in about 10 years, uh, sorry, about 10 months, and he writes this text message, he says, Dear Eric, I don't know why, he starts off all of his letters, uh, all of his messages like a, like a letter, he says, Dear Eric, he says, I miss your face, and I miss your body, love, Dad, <laughs> it's forever seared in my mind. And you know, I I bring that up because there's a gap between, uh, whenever there's a cultural gap, there's a language gap as well. And uh, when you look at Psalm 133, I I had the same sentiments about this psalm, right? This psalm, when you first read it, it's sort of strange. The language doesn't hit you uh, quite right uh, because he's talking about this oil, this uh, this oil that runs down the beard of Aaron, right? Let me just read it for us. Verse 2. He says this, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And all of a sudden, you get this imagery of this older Jewish guy, right, and him pouring oil on his head and it running down from the top of his head to the bottom of his beard, like a Vidal Sassoon kind of commercial, right? And it's sort of strange. It's weird. and But as you begin to understand the context of the culture at that time, what you begin to realize is that he's talking, of course, about community. In fact, in verse 1, he says, behold, like, look, pay attention to this. I have something really, really important to share with you. And then he says, verse 2, he says, it is like community, or the unity between brothers and sisters is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And what he's talking about here is this oil was used during ordination ceremonies of Levitical priests. And so, in other words, these were only used in holy moments these were rare occasions and this oil that was used was incredibly precious and so this oil not only was precious not only was it rare not only was it used in holy moments but the fragrance of this oil was intoxicating it was so sweet to the to the nose and so what the psalmist here is saying is that this is community that it is precious that it is rare that the unity between brothers and sisters is so rare to find at times And yet, and yet, it is holy. It is holy. In fact, later on, he uses this imagery of Mount Hernan and the dew that falls on Mount Hernan. And basically, what he's getting at is that dew was collected by the Israelites for actually drinking at times. And it was really refreshing. And so he's saying community is refreshing. In fact, later on, he talks about Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is that holy hill where the temple of the Lord till this day is still on. And so he's saying this, that community is where you can actually experience the very presence of God himself. Just like how if you go up to Mount Zion and you go into the temple of the Lord where the Jewish people believe the very presence of God is, he's saying that this is what unity is like. It is like experiencing the very presence of God himself. And so he says community is precious. It's a beautiful fragrance. It's holy. It's refreshing. And it's a place where you can experience the very presence of the Lord. You know, I was uh, put onto this study uh, by this podcast that I listened to, it's a leadership podcast, but the author of this new book, I I forget what the book is, but he's a a professor over at Harvard, and I guess Harvard uh, did one of their biggest, longest studies, and they just released it like two or three years ago, but it was an 83-year-old study, 83 years old. It was launched in 1938, and their single question that they were trying to get at and what they were trying to answer starting in 1938 was simply this what makes human beings live long healthy lives what makes them live long and healthy lives and so for 83 years they began tracking people's lives they took brain scans they did lengthy questionnaires hundreds of uh, people had their blood drawn in fact jfk was a part of this study it was so long and yet what they determined was this that what what makes people healthy what makes people live really really long lives is actually also the very same thing that makes them incredibly happy. And, and guess what this thing is? I mean, uh, look no further than, than what Scripture is already saying here. The thing that makes people healthy, the thing that makes people happy is community, is healthy relationships. Healthy relationships. Science is only catching up now to what Scripture has been saying for thousands and thousands and thousands of years If you want to live long and healthy lives, if you want to live lives of fulfilled joy and happiness, what the scriptures, what science is now saying is you need to find really good friends, to find really good community, to find people that you can begin sharing life with. Look, I want you to think about it. Just think about your own lives for a moment. Right, think about, go back into your memories. I bet you, I bet you the happiest moments of your life, the most joy-filled moments of your life included two things. One was friends or family. They were probably present there. And the second thing was the feeling of acceptance and love, was it not? That the moments that you cherished the most were, were two things were present, your family and friends, and then the fact that you were accepted and loved in that moment. You know, last year or, uh, yeah, last year I went to, uh, I, I flew here to Orange County, actually. I went to Orange County for a conference, for a pastor's conference, and I was there for like three days, and uh, mind you now, I have three little kids, and they're six, three and one, and so anytime I can get away from my kids, I'm like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. I love my kids. Uh, they're here. Uh, one of them's here in this room, so <laughs> I love my kids, but anytime I can get uh, away from them, it, it's, it's a praise the Lord moment. I was going to go alone, and so I was going to go to this conference, so I uh, booked myself a nice hotel room. I lined up all the things that I was going to eat because in Seattle, not that much good food, uh, and even in Orange County, much, much better food than in Seattle, so I lined up all these places to go and eat, and my first stop was going to be In-N-Out because I love In-N-Out. So I get off the plane. I go to In-N-Out, and I'm all alone, and I eat this great big burger, the double-double animal style, animal style fries, all that stuff. I eat it. It's so good, Um, but it's not great. It's not great. It's just good. In my head, it was so much better. But but sitting there all alone, eating this meal all alone, it was okay. It was good, but it wasn't great. I went to my hotel room. I checked in. This beautiful hotel room had this beautiful view, uh, and I I went into my hotel room. I kid you not. I just went in there and I screamed. I was like, "Yeah, I'm all alone!" And then I started like dancing, just doing my own thing. And then after about five minutes, it got old, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just here, all alone, no one else." (laughs) It was good. It wasn't great, though. It was good. It wasn't great. But as I was preparing this sermon, another memory came to my mind, and it was of two kids. I was speaking at this youth retreat, and I remember uh, coming out and, and seeing these two little kids. Uh, it was a youth retreat, and so um, some of the youth leaders had, had little kids, and these two little kids, um, they didn't have a single thing to their name. They didn't have any possessions. They didn't have any clothes, money, whatever. They didn't have all of those things. They didn't have a job, right? They are just kids, but they had a rock, and they had a hole in the ground, They literally dug this little hole in the ground. They had a rock, and they just started rolling this rock into the hole. They started playing a game together, just the two of them. And I kid you not, I went in there to preach, came back out. uh, Sorry, uh, they they were playing at the beginning uh, during the worship part. I went in to preach. I came out, and they were still playing. And then after the worship was over, I went back in to to worship with the the youth students. I came back out, and they were still playing for three hours. Okay, that was a long retreat, by the way. And I don't think the youth retreat here is going to be three hours, right? But... But three hours, these kids played just roll a rock into the hole for three, and they were laughing. They were having such a great time. Why? Because they had each other. That's it. They just had each other. They had a rock, they had each other, and they had the most uh, fulfilled joy that they've probably ever, ever experienced in this life just because they had each other. Friends, the most valuable thing that you can invest your time The most valuable thing on planet earth, of course, Jesus Christ, your relationship with him, but then in a close second are the people to your left and to your right. This very community, the people in this church are the most valuable thing. They are going to bring you happiness. They are going to bring you joy. They are going to bring you fulfillment as long as we decide to invest in one another. And this leads me now to the second point, the cost now. So if relationships are valuable, they will now cost us. I mean, we know this. This is simple. Right? A diamond is valuable. This is why it costs a lot. Right? A house is valuable. This is why it costs. A car is valuable. This is why it costs a lot. And in the same way, relationships are the most valuable thing. It's not a house that's going to uh, bring you a lot of fulfillment. It's not a career that's going to bring you a lot of fulfillment. It's not whatever, what sneakers, right? None of these things are going to bring you as much happiness as a relationship is. And guess what? It's going to cost you a ton, It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you resources. It's going to cost you a lot, your freedoms. It's going to cost you in order to have these robust relationships. And so here's the question now. If we know this about relationships, and if we know that they bring us so much happiness—more than a new home, more than a new car, more than uh, 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 having all the fame and notoriety in the world—if that is the case, then why, why do we put success? Why do we put the pursuit of success over relationships? Why do we put uh, 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 things in front of relationships? You know, uh, I I follow a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt, and he's a moral psychologist, uh, and he he works at NYU. And one of the first books he published was a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And I believe in chapter 6, there's, he has a little section in chapter 6 called Freedom Can Be Hazardous for Your Health. And I want you to listen to what he says because this struck me. This struck me really deep, okay? I think it will be up here on the screens for you. He says this, if you want to predict how happy someone is or how long she will live, and if you are not allowed to ask about her genes or personality, you should find out about her social relationships Having strong social relationships strengthens the immune system, extends life more than does quitting smoking, more than does quitting smoking, speeds recovery from surgery. So if you know somebody who just had surgery, go sit at their bedside, be with them. It'll help them to heal faster, reduces the risk of depression and anxiety disorders, some of the things that we're talking about in point one. But now listen to this, okay? Listen to this part. This part's really, this struck me, okay? An ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous. An ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope for such fulfillment. Do you hear what he's saying? We live in a context and in a culture that tells us the greatest thing you can have is not money, not cars, not career, but actually your freedom. My belief is this. In America, our idol is not success. Our true idol is freedom. And what you find actually on the left politically and on the right politically is this idolatry freedom, which is for me kind of, uh, kind of confusing because they should be getting along more. People on the left and on the right should get along more because both of them, both equally cherish freedom. And if you dare try to touch any American's freedoms, man, they're like, get away. Don't you dare touch my freedoms. And yet, what, what, what? this is what he's saying here, is an extreme personal freedom can be dangerous for you. Look at what he goes on to say, in fact. Um, uh, actually, uh, sorry, right before this quote, he, he has another one. So, let me just read from this, and then we'll talk about it. It'll be up here on the screens for you as well. It's the second quote of Jonathan Haidt. Okay, well, if it's not up there, I'll explain okay? He says this, in the late 19th century, one of the founders of sociology, Emile Durkheim, performed a scholarly miracle. He gathered data from across Europe to study the factors that affect the suicide rate. Okay, so he wanted to know what affects suicide rates. And he said this, his findings can be summarized in one word. One word, constraints. Constraints, not freedom, right? We think freedom makes us happy, but actually he says, no, 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 constraints make you happy. No matter how he parsed the data, people who had fewer social constraints, bonds, and obligations were more likely to kill themselves. People living alone were most likely to kill themselves, married people less, married people with children still less. Durkheim concluded that people needed obligations and constraints to provide structure and meaning to their lives. A hundred years of further studies have confirmed Durkheim's diagnosis do you understand you we we live in a time and in a generation that tells us you have to be self-sufficient you have to do it all alone like your careers your house your job everything you have to do it all alone in fact this is what a successful person looks like somebody who did it all on their own pulling themselves up by the bootstraps you did it all alone and therefore you can you can call yourself successful now we are being fed this and yet it is so dangerous so hazardous to us and yet even now science is saying no 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 no, no. don't don't look at the freedoms look at the constraints look we will spend hours and hours of energy and resources crafting great hobbies for ourselves because we think that'll make us happy which is by the way not bad i love golf i have my hobbies Okay, But we will spend loads of time on that. We will spend loads of time, in fact, on finding the next Netflix show that we're going to watch. I don't know how many of you do this, right? but I will literally spend two hours looking for the next TV show that I want to start and, 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 and spend 15 hours on just you know, you know, zoning out and watching that one TV show. So many of us will spend hours and hours and hours on buying the right home or buying the right car or buying whatever, right? But considering how much relationships actually mean to our happiness, how much time do we actually learn in maintaining these healthy relationships, in pouring into these relationships, in constraining our lives so that we can have better and better relationships? Look, here's the question. Are you willing to give up your freedom for others? To have thriving relationships with others. Are you willing? Give up what you want to eat and watch what you want for the group. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give up that freedom? Are you willing to give up the freedom of, of going to that concert instead of community group? And yet you'll give up that concert in order to attend community group that night. Are you willing to give up dreams of success so that you can be planted here in L.A.? Are you willing to give up time, discerning ways to love on the difficult people in your lives? Are you willing to constrain your lives in order to have the thing that will make you the most happiest? You know, at our church in Seattle, there's um, one of the members that I've been getting to know more is a guy named Aaron. And Aaron is a hunter. He loves hunting. Uh, He does this thing called conservationist hunting, so I guess it's good for the environment. Uh, But he loves hunting, fishing, camping. He loves all this outdoor stuff. Uh, He's originally from Alaska. He moved to Seattle. He still loves it. And he was talking to me about this show that he watched on Netflix uh, called Alone. And apparently the show Alone, I've never watched the show, I've never even read up on the show, so everything I'm about to tell you is all from Aaron, okay? Uh, But Aaron was sharing with me that somebody gave him this show because he loves hunting, but basically the show is this, okay? It's a game show where all these contestants have to live all alone in the wild all by themselves. They have to survive. So they just drop them off in the middle of nowhere with just like a knife or a hatchet or a flint rock or whatever, right? And they got to survive for as long as humanly possible uh, against all these other contestants. All they're given is a camera. So they have to film themselves. There's no film crew. They just have to film themselves. Uh, And then on top of that, they don't know when the other contestants have given up. So they just have to survive for as long as they can because they don't know how the other contestants are doing. But he told me this. This was really fascinating. He said... No one, no one on that show makes it past 100 days. He said so many of these people can actually live an infinite amount of time out there. They, 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 they know how to survive, so they know how to build shelters. They know how to hunt rabbits and go fishing and whatever, right? They know all the survival skills. They can survive out there for an infinite amount of time, and yet all of them give up at 100 days. They're like, more often than 100, no one makes it past 100 days. And he said the number one reason why everyone gives up at 100 days is because they start to go a little crazy they don't have anybody around them and they start saying things like this i miss my wife i miss my husband i miss my children i miss my friends i miss seeing people's faces i just i can't stand being alone for another second so they push the button and then people come and rescue them and it's over do you realize that you don't just need water food shelter and clothing to survive do you realize we need each other to actually survive and do you realize that this message, the lie that our culture keeps telling us is you're all alone, you're all alone. you have to do it all alone, you have to do it all alone. This thing is actually killing us. It's like somebody telling you, stop eating, stop drinking water. It's like our culture is literally telling us this, and we're like, yes, we must do this. And we're literally killing our souls from the inside out. Is it no wonder, is it no wonder, friends, that we have so much in this modern age and yet we're still so incredibly unhappy. Look, just really quickly, and first, I just recently did a wedding, and I, I finally preached on First Corinthians 13. I was trying to stay away from that passage, but it's a great love passage, you know, where Paul talks about how love is patient, love is kind. But if you look, right, what was Paul preaching to? He was preaching to a church that was incredibly successful. They had all the money in the world. In fact, he was trying to fundraise from them so that he could give it to the poor in Jerusalem, they had all the bling-bling in the world. They had all the, the, the finances. They had all the jobs. In fact, even as a church, they focused in on the external spiritual giftings. They were focusing on this gift of tongues and on the gift of prophecy and all these things. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it'll be up here on the screens hopefully for you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, this, this church was so about the exterior, about like showing, uh, showing up being like exterior, uh, ex, uh, kind of impressive exteriorly. And he's saying, look, you're, you're impressive, church, but, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. I, I remember... Um, we, at our church, we do uh, Alpha, so similar to citizens. You guys do Alpha here, and it's, it's a course designed for non-Christians or skeptics or people who are doubting. And at one of our tables, uh, during the, uh, the, we, we do the weekend retreat where we pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon people, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to fill people. And in the first session, uh, I was sitting down with two married couples. One married couple had been married for 30 years. And by the way, both of them were Korean-American, Okay. And um, I I tell you that because in Korean-American culture, right, uh, age is huge, right? So if somebody's older than you, then you respect them, right? You never ask, right? So the the couple sitting to my left uh, had been married for 30 years. They were probably in their 60s. um, And their kids, their kids were, were probably around my age. They had everything they ever wanted in this life. Both of them were highly successful people. They both owned their own businesses. Husband owned his own business. Wife owned their own business. They had yachts. They had a mansion. They sent all their kids to, to, to amazing universities, all paid for. They had everything they ever wanted. And yet before the session began, they were talking to me, and they were like, Pastor, can you, can you counsel us? And I was like, I've only been, I've been married for less than 10 years like, I, I think you guys should teach me, but they were asking me to counsel them because the wife said it like, and I, and I kid you not, this is literally what she said to me. She said, the first 15 years of our marriage, it sucked. It was hard, but she said, the last 15 years have been hell. Being married to this guy has been hell. Later on, another married couple came to our table, and, and uh, they were a younger, younger couple. They'd been married only a few years and uh, the wife of this younger uh, couple was, was also talking about her marriage and how much she was struggling in her marriage. And she said this. She said, and, and I, I'm not even kidding. This is literally what she said. She said, I'm so upset at my husband because he's not driven. If only he were driven, like he would make more money and we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in the financial situation we are now because they, were on the, they had to move out of their 3,500-square-foot home into a smaller, like 1,000-square-foot apartment they had, to move, they had to downsize, they had to like sell things, they had to move everything. They had to do all of this because their, her husband lost his job for like the seventh time. And she was like, if only my husband made more money, if only my husband were more driven, I would be happy. This is literally what she said. And the other woman, the older uh, woman, she looked at her dead in the eye and she said, look at me. I have everything I've ever wanted in this life. Materially, I have everything I've ever wanted. Everyone who looks at me, they think I have the perfect life, but she she said, I don't. Money is not gonna solve anything. She said, you've gotta work on your marriage now. Work on it now because you could have everything, and if the love between you is not there, you have nothing at all. You have nothing at all. See, relationships, friends, are so valuable, and yet they're so costly. They will cost you so much. You you, you have to be there. You have to to pick up the tab. You have to be generous. You have to sit at their bedside when when they're feeling sick. Or you have to visit them when they're feeling down. You have to be there for each other. It costs so much. And you cannot have the freedoms that you so desire. And yet, and yet what the scriptures tell us is that this is where you will experience God himself, friends. The joy that you will experience is where God himself resides. And so this leads us to our third and final point, the resources for shared life. So in point one, we established they're valuable. Point two, they're costly. But now we need resources, right, to spend. You need resources to spend to actually buy this thing called relationships. And this is why people who are relationally rich, only people who are relationally rich can actually afford these kinds of relationships. Right, just like a diamond. If you want to buy a diamond, well, you need the resources to buy it. If you want healthy, long relationships, you need the relational resources to actually invest into these relationships. And here's what I love about Christianity. Here's what I absolutely love about Christianity. Christianity gives us the best resources to love one another, to have meaningful, deep relationships. Why? Because every other religion in the world, I'm kidding. Every other religion in the world is not about a deeply personal God who desires to have a deeply personal relationship with his people. Only in Christianity do we find a deeply personal God who deeply personally loves each and every single one of us in this place and would actually send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Why? So that He could reconcile us back to the Father. In fact, this is why in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8, the Apostle John writes this. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Why? Do you understand that our God is triune, and before there was anything material in existence, there was God. Before there was time, space, and matter, there was God. And God was three persons in one. And there was this social unity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, there was love before anything else. God is a relational God. And thus, when he created the heavens and the earth, friends, guess why? Guess why he did it? He didn't do it because he needed us. He did it because he wanted to spill out and pour out his love onto us. And so take a concept like forgiveness. Did you know that forgiveness, which is necessary in every relationship, you're going to need to forgive a thousand times over by the time you you end this life. You're going to need to forgive over and over and over again. A concept like forgiveness is uniquely Christian. Did you know this? It is uniquely Christian. Not all religions have the resources for its people to actually forgive like Christianity does. In fact, take a look at what the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, I don't know if you knew, they have encyclopedias on the Bible, okay? Look at what it says on forgiveness. Forgiveness is a uniquely Christian doctrine. It is uniquely Christian. In other religions, forgiveness does not have the same force. In animism, there is no awareness of a personal relationship with God. In Hinduism, uh, all have to pay the inexorable consequences of karma in the wheel of reincarnations. Buddhism, likewise, knows nothing of a forgiving God. The idea is present in Islam, but there is no personal God and Father. Even in Judaism, forgiveness remains a limited experience, though forgiveness, as developed in the New Testament, adds dimension to the teaching of the Old Testament. Forgiveness is a uniquely Christian doctrine, and Christians should be able to forgive uh, far better than every other person here on planet Earth. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Here, let's look at Ephesians really quickly now. I know know it's already been long, but let's just look really quickly, okay? Ephesians, let me sum it up really quickly. Chapters 1 to 3, all about the gospel. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. That's all Apostle Paul talks about, chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapter 4, he turns his attention now to ethics. How should we live this life now? And guess what the first thing he talks about is? You guys have been going through this series called The Spirit-Filled Life uh, throughout this whole year. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Do you know what a spirit-filled life looks like first? Like what's the first transformation you're going to experience? It's not e- expressing yourself spiritually in ecstatic ways like speaking in tongues or prophesying. He's, he's, none of that. It's not about uh, if you're first filled in spirit, all of your addictions are gone. Of course, that may happen, and hopefully that does happen. It's not about that. The first thing that you will experience transformation is, Paul says this, is your relationships. Why? Because Christians should be the best at relationships. Christians should be far better than any other religion on planet earth on relationships. This is why if you look at verses 25 to 32, I'll just be very brief about this. But every single command, he gives a whole list of commands. Every single command is relational in nature. Look quickly, right? He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's about relationships. Do not steal. That's about relationships. Don't steal from each other. Share with anyone in need. That's about relationships. Only words. Use only words good for building up. Relationships. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That grieving is about relationships. If you have poor relationships, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? He says, bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, slander, be put away from you. All malice. That's relational. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's all about relationships. The first transformation you as a Christian should experience is in the area of your relationships. It's not about giftings. It's not about spiritual giftings. It's not about addiction. It's not about sin. It's not about those things. It's simply about having better relationships. And so Christians, let me, let me talk to you. If you're a Christian in here, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, we have to get this Right? You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, do you know what Paul calls the gospel? He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know why? Because that's the gospel. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ came and died for us. Why? So that we could have a relationship, a personal relationship with the Father. And as John says, look, we've been given this love. You and I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Yet we were given this grace and this love. And now God tells us the first way it should be extended is to other people. We have to get this right, Christians. And look, if you're not a Christian here and you're worshiping with us today, I'm so glad that you're here today. And you might be thinking of two things. I tried to put myself in your place, but you might be thinking two things. One is this some of the Christians I know, some of the Christians I know are are by far not the most loving people in the world. In fact, one of the reasons I left the church, one of the reasons why I left the church is because of the Christians. And the second thing uh, you might be thinking is this, are you trying to say, Eric, that I cannot love as well as a Christian loves? Because, you know, not to boast or anything, Eric, but, but I think, I think that I can love better than some of the Christians I've noticed in my life. I think I can love far better than them. So let me tackle those two things one at a time, okay? If, if you're sitting here, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, and you are hurt by the church, if you are hurt by the church, okay, let me just say this, we repent. We're sorry. Like, like, we're sorry. And, and Christians, we should be the best at saying this. This is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. Did you realize that we, we get into the kingdom of heaven by saying, I'm sorry. It was my fault. It was, it was our fault. We're so sorry that you were hurt by the church. This is not the way we learned Christ. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So if you were hurt by the church, that is not the way Christians learn Christ. And we're sorry that you were hurt. The Christian Christian message is that we were loved infinitely by God Himself. And He's given us the resources to love others, friends. And thus, if you've met an unloving Christian, it's not because our God isn't loving. It's because, honestly, we've abused the love that has been given to us. You know, the best illustration I can think of is maybe something like this. Imagine with me for a second, you meet a child who's extremely, has extremely wealthy parents. And he's been given or she's been given every resource under the sun to thrive. All the tutoring, all the um, you know, extracurricular activities, all the coaches to thrive in life. And on top of that, the parents were not just rich and, and provided wealth for the child, but they provided their love and their presence. They were there for all the soccer games, for all the Taekwondo meets or whatever it is, right? They were there, they were present. They were given all the love in the world too. In other words, this child was given everything in the world to to live a, a good life, and yet they squander it all. They abuse it, and they end up not making anything of it. We would look at that and not blame the parents. We would blame probably the child for abusing those resources, for abusing that kind of grace. And in the same way, Christians, we've been given the greatest resource of love, and yet we've abused it over and over and over again. And secondly, look, I'm not suggesting that people who don't know Christ don't know love. Of course, you and I know this, that you sometimes love better than Christians love. But at the same time, what I'm suggesting is that if you do not believe in God, that if you do not believe that there is a moral force outside of ourselves that is in control of all things, we cannot establish and ground love. Think about this. If there is no God, everything that we experience called love are just electrical currents firing in your brain that make you feel connected to somebody. That's all you can say about love. That's all we can say. And yet if there is God, and if God is real, and if God did come down as as Jesus Christ and he did die on a cross for our sins, that means that love is real and that there is purpose in everything that we do. And so look, Christians, look, I've got to plead and beg with you. We have to get this right. We have to get this right. If citizens, if citizens wants to be salt and light to L.A., if citizens wants to be evangelistic to all those who are watching, because we do live in a watching world. We live in a world where Christians and non-Christians look at the church and they're watching the church. And if we want to be salt and light to the world, it begins with our relationships, how we love one another. We cannot let politics divide us. We cannot uh, allow our opinions on certain presidential candidates to uh, affect our love for one another. We cannot allow bitterness or clamor or division to affect us. We have to get this right. Why? Because we have a God who came down and died for us, friends. And if we want to begin witnessing to a watching world, it begins with the love that exists between you, between me, between all the people in this congregation, friends. I'm telling you, I'm convinced. I'm convinced, friends, you know, in the 70s, evangelism was all about these big revivals, right? Billy Graham used to put on these big crusades and these big revivals and he used to give this gospel message. And then somewhere in the 80s and the 90s, it became tracks. You guys remember the tracks? It's like when you would uh, come out of a Korean grocery store or you're walking down, you know, 4th uh, you know, Street Promenade in Santa Monica and this person gives you a track, right, where it says like, it's like a little booklet and you flip through it and on the front page it says, do you know where you're going to go after you die? Right? And you flip the page and it's like hell. Right? And there's a guy like, burning in fire. Right? right, Those used to actually kind of be effective. Now today it's like, whoa, what, what are you doing? Right. I truly believe that the greatest tool of evangelism that the church has today, especially in a nation like ours, where loneliness is on the rise, where love, where we're not seeing true love anymore, it's actually, friends, it's actually going to be when the church rises up. Look, friends, I know, I know loving each other is so difficult. It is so hard. But friends, remember that Christ Jesus, he paid it all for you and for me. And thus now we have the resources to pay it all for each other. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I... I just want to pray for each person here, Lord. I know that there are people in this place, Lord, who were on their way to church, Lord, maybe bickering and fighting with mom and dad, bickering and fighting with their spouse, bickering and fighting with another church member, Lord. There were people who were divided as they were coming to church, Lord. And Lord, if that is us, Lord, we repent and we come before you again and ask for your forgiveness to wash over us, to cleanse us once again, Lord. And to give us a newness in spirit, Lord, so that we can love one another. Lord, there are people in this place, God, who need tremendous healing, Lord. They have been crushed and broken and disappointed, God, again and again by by people to their left and to their right, Lord. And there are huge gaping scars in their hearts, God. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would go and would heal them and would comfort them. Would you bind up their wounds, Would you allow your love, God, to cover the multitude of sins, God, that have plagued them for years and for years and for years? And Lord, we pray, God, that as a community, God, that you would help us now to remember just how good your son Jesus was to us and that his cross, God, is a reminder, God, that we have, God, we have all the resources we need to really love one another. And so, Lord, we pray and we ask that your spirit would descend upon us, that you would help us in Jesus' name, Lord, to love one another to lay down our comforts, to lay down our freedoms, to lay down um, all sorts of time and energy and resources, Lord, to really love one another. God, we thank you, God, for all that you're doing here at this church. We're so thankful for their, uh, for Pastor Jason, God, for their leadership, God, for all the people here. And, God, we ask that you continuously do a good work in them. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.